Chapter Four, Part One, of Moonfleet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Moonfleet, by J. Mead Faulkner. Chapter Four, Part One of Two. In the vault, let us hob and knob with death. Tennyson. Though nothing of the vault except the roof was visible from where I lay, and so I could not see these visitors, yet I heard every word spoken, and soon made out one voice as being Master Ratsey's. This discovery gave me no surprise, but much solace, for I thought that if the worst happened and I was discovered, I should find one friend with whom I could plead for life. It is well the earth gave way, the sexton was saying. On a night when we were here to find it, I was in the graveyard myself after midday, and all was snug and tight then. Twould have been awkward enough to have a hole stand open through the day for any passer-by to light on. There were four or five men in the vault already, and I could hear more coming down the passage, and guessed from their heavy footsteps that they were carrying burdens. There was a sound too of dumping kegs on the ground, with a swish of liquor inside them. And then the noise of casks being moved. I thought we should have a fall there ere long, Ratsey went on. What with this drought parching the ground and the trampling at the edge when we move the side stone to get in, but there is no mischief done beyond what can be easily made good. A gravestone or two and a few spades of earth will make all sound again. Leave that to me. Be careful what you do, rejoined another man's voice that I did not know, lest someone see you digging and sent us out. Make your mind easy, Ratsey said. I have dug too often in this graveyard for any to wonder if they see me with a spade. Then the conversation broke off, and there was little more talking, only a noise of men going backwards and forwards, and of putting down of the kegs and the hollow gurgle of good liquor being poured from beakers into the casks. By and by, fumes of brandy began to fill the air and climb to where I lay, overcoming the mouldy smell of decayed wood and the dampness of the green walls. It may have been that these fumes mounted to my head and gave me courage not my own, but so it was that I lost something of the stifling fear that had gripped me, and could listen with more ease to what was going forward. There was a pause in the carrying to and fro. They were talking again now, and someone said I was in Dorchester three days ago and heard men say it will go hard with the poor chaps who had the brush with the elector last summer. Judge Barentine comes on a size next week. And that old fox Maskew has driven down to Totten to get at him before and coach him back, making out to him that the law's arm is weak in these parts against the contraband, and must be strengthened by some wholesome hangings. They are a cruel pair, another put in, and we shall have new gibbets on Ridgetown for leading lights. Once I get even with Maskew, the other may go hang. Ay, and they may hang me too. The devil send him to meet me one dark night on the down alone. Said someone else, and I will give him a pistol's mouth to look down and spoil his face for him. No, thou wilt not," said a deep voice, and then I knew that Elzevir was there too. None shall lay hand on Maskew but I. So mark that lad, that when his day of reckoning comes, 'tis I will reckon with him. Then for a few minutes I did not pay much heed to what was said, being terribly straitened for room and cramped with pain from lying so long in one place. 
The thick smoke from the pitch torches, too, came curling across the roof and down upon me, making me sick and giddy with its evil smell and taste. And though all was very dim, I could see my hands were black with oily smuts. At last I was able to wriggle myself over without making too much noise, and felt a great relief in changing sides, but gave such a start as made the coffin creak again at hearing my own name. "'There is a boy of Trinchard's,' said a voice that I thought was Parmeter's, who lived at the bottom of the village. "'There is a boy of Trinchard's that I mistrust. He is forever wandering in the graveyard, and I have seen him a score of times sitting on this tomb and looking out to sea. This very night, when the wind fell at sundown, we were hung up with sails flapping three miles out, and waited for the dark to get the sweeps. I took my glass to scan the coastline, and lo, here on the tomb-top, sits Master Trenchard. I could not see his face, but knew him by his cut, and fear the boy sits there to play the spy, and then tells Maskew. "'You're right,' said Greening of Ringstave, for I knew his slow drawl. And many a time, when I have sat in the wood, and watched the manor to see Maskew safe at home before we ran a cargo, I have seen this boy, too, go round about the place with a hang-dog look, scanning the house as if his life depended on it. "'Twas very true what Greening said, for of a summer evening I would take the path that led up Weatherbeach Hill, behind the manor, both because twas a walk that had a good prospect in itself, and also a sweet charm for me, namely, the hope of seeing Grace Maskew. And there I often sat upon the stile that ends the path and opens on the down, and watched the old half-ruined house below, and sometimes saw white-frocked Gracie walking on the terrace in the evening sun and sometimes in returning passed her window near enough to wave a greeting. And once, when she had the fever, and Dr. Hawkins came twice a day to see her, I had no heart for school, but sat on that stile the live-long day, looking at the gabled house where she was lying ill, and Mr. Glennie never rated me for playing truant, nor told Aunt Jane, guessing, as I thought afterwards, the cause, and having once been young himself, t'was but boy's love, serious for me, and on the day she lay near death I made so bold as to stop Dr. Hawkins on his horse and ask him how she did. And he bearing with me for the eagerness that he read in my face, bent down over his saddle and smiled, and said my playmate would come back to me again. So it was quite true that I watched the house, but not as a spy, and would not have borne tales to old Maskew for anything that could be offered. Then Ratsy spoke up for me and said, "'Tis a false scent. "'The boy is well enough and simple, "'and has told me many a time he seeks the churchyard "'because there is a fine view to be had there of the sea. "'And tis the sea he loves. "'A month ago, when the high tide set, "'and this vault was so full of water that we could not get in, "'I came with Elzevir to make out if the floods were going down inside, "'or what eddy t'was that set the casks tapping one against another. "'So as I lay on the ground with my ear glued close against the wall, who should march round the church but John Trenchard, Esquire, not treading delicately like King Agag, or spying, but just coming on a voyage of discovery for himself. For in the church on Sunday, when we heard the tapping in the vault below, my young gentleman was scared enough, but afterwards, being told by Parson Glenny, who should know better, that such noises were not made by ghosts, but by the moons at sea in their coffins, he plucks up his heart and comes down on the Monday to see if they are still afloat. So there he caught me lying like a zany on the ground. 
You may guess I stood at attention soon enough, but told them I was looking at the founds to see if they wanted underpinnings from the flood. And so I set his mind at ease, for tis a simple child, and packed him off to get my dubbing-hammer. And I think the boy will not be here so often now to frighten honest Parameter, for I have weaved him some pretty tales of Blackbeard, and he has a wholesome scare of meeting the colonel. But after dark I pledged my life that neither he nor any other in the town would pass the churchyard wall, no, not for a thousand pounds. I heard him chuckling to himself, and the others laughed loudly too, when he was telling how he palmed me off. But he who laughs loudest, who laughs last, thought I, and should have chuckled too, were it not for making the coffin creak. And then, to my surprise, Elzevir spoke, The lad is a brave lad. I would he were my son. He is David's age, and will make a good sailor later on. They were simple words, yet pleasing to me, for Elzevir spoke as if he meant them, and I had got to like him a little, in spite of all his grimness, and besides that, was sorry for his grief over his son. I was so moved by what he said, that for a moment I was for jumping up and calling out to him that I lay here and liked him well, but then thought better of it, and so kept still. The carrying was over and I fancy they were all sitting on the ends of kegs or leaning up against the pile, but could not see, and was still much troubled with the torch smoke, though now and then I caught through it a whiff of tobacco, which showed that some were smoking. Then Greening, who had a singing voice for all his drawl, struck up with, says the captain to the crew, we have slipped the revenue. But Ratsy stopped him with a sharp, no more of that. The words aren't to our taste to-night, but come as wry as if the parson called Old Hundred and I tuned up with Venny. I knew he meant the last verse with a hanging touch in it, but Greening was for going on with the song until some others broke in too, and he saw that the company would have none of it. Not but what the laborer is worthy of his hire, went on Master Ratsy, so spile that little breaker of Skeedam, and send a rummer round to keep off midnight chills. He loved a glass of the good liquor well and with him t'was always the same reasoning, namely, to keep off chills, though he chopped the words to suit the season, and now t'was autumn, now winter, now spring, or summer chills. They must have found glasses, though I could not remember to have seen any in the vault, for a minute later Fugelman Ratsy spoke again. Now, lads, glasses full and bumpers for a toast, and here's to Blackbeard, to Father Blackbeard, who watches over our treasure better than he did over his own. For were it not the fear of him that keeps off idle feet and prying eyes, we should have the godgers in, and our store ransacked twenty times. So he spoke, and it seemed there was a little halting at first, as of men not liking to take Blackbeard's name in Blackbeard's place, or raise the devil by mocking at him. But then some of the bolder shouted, Blackbeard! And so the more timid chimed in, and in a minute there were a score of voices calling, Blackbeard! Blackbeard! till the place rang again. Then Elzevir cried out angrily, Silence! Are you mad, or has the liquor mastered you? Are you revenue men that you dare shout and royster? Or contrabandiers with a luger in the offing and your life in your hand? You make noise enough to wake folk in Moonfleet from their beds. Tut, man! retorted Ratsy testily. And if they waked, they would but pull the blankets tight about their ears and say twas Blackbeard piping his crew of the lost moons to help him dig for treasure. Yet for all that, twas plain that Block ruled the roost, for there was silence for a minute, and then one said, Aye, Master Elzevir is right. 
Let us away, the night is far spent, and we have nothing but the sweeps to take the lugger out of sight by dawn. So the meeting broke up, and the torchlight grew dimmer, and died away as it had come, in a red flicker on the roof, and the footsteps sounded fainter as they went up the passage, until the vault was left to the dead men and me. Yet, for a very long time, it seemed hours. After all had gone, I could hear a murmur of distant voices, and knew that some were talking at the end of the passage, and perhaps considering how the landslip might best be restored. So while I heard them thus conversing, I dared not descend from my perch, lest someone might turn back to the vault, though I was glad enough to sit up and ease my aching back and limbs. Yet in the awful blackness of the place, even the echo of these human voices seemed a kindly and blessed thing, and a certain shrinking loneliness fell on me when they ceased at last, and all was silent. Then I resolved I would be off at once, and get back to the moonlight bed that I had left hours ago, having no stomach for more treasure-hunting, and being glad, indeed, to be still left with the treasure of life. Thus, sitting where I was, I lit my candle once more, and then clambered across that great coffin which, for two hours or more, had been a mid-wall of partition between me and danger. But to get out of the niche was harder than to get in, for now that I had a candle to light me, I saw that the coffin, though sound enough to outer view, was wormed through and through and little better than a rotten shell. So it was that I had some ado to get over it, not daring either to kneel upon it, or to bring much weight to bear with my hand, lest it should go through. And now having got safely across, I sat for an instant on that narrow ledge of the stone shelf which projected beyond the coffin on the vault side, and made ready to jump forward onto the floor below. And how it happened I know not. But there I lost my balance, and as I slipped the candle flew out of my grasp. Then I clutched at the coffin to save myself, but my hand went clean through it, and so I came to the ground in a cloud of dust and splinters. Having only got hold of a wisp of seaweed, or a handful of those draggled funeral trappings which were strewn about this place. The floor of the vault was sandy, and so, though I fell crookedly, I took but little harm beyond a shaking, and soon, pulling myself together, set to strike my flint and blow the match into a flame to search for the fallen candle. Yet all the time I kept in my fingers this handful of light stuff, and when the flame burnt up again, I held the thing against the light, and saw that it was no wisp of seaweed, but something black and wiry. For a moment I could not gather what I had hold of, but then gave a start that nearly sent the candle out, and perhaps a cry, and let it drop as if it were red-hot iron. For I knew that it was a man's beard. Now when I saw that, I felt a sort of throttling fright as though one had caught hold of my heart-strings, and so many and such strange thoughts rose in me that the blood went pounding round and round in my head, as it did once afterwards, when I was fighting with the sea and nearly drowned. Surely to have in hand the beard of any dead man in any place was bad enough, but worse a thousand times in such a place as this, and to know on whose face it had grown. For, almost before I fully saw what it was, I knew it was that blackbeard that had given Colonel John Moon his nickname, and this was his great coffin I had hid behind. I had lain, therefore, all that time cheek by jowl, with Blackbeard himself, with only a thin shell of tinderwood to keep him from me, and now had thrust my hand, 
into his coffin and plucked away his beard, so that if ever wicked men have power to show themselves after death and still to work evil, one would guess that he would show himself now and fall upon me. Thus a sick dread got hold of me. And had I been a woman or a girl, I think I should have swooned. But being only a boy, and not knowing how to swoon, did the next best thing, which was to put myself as far as might be from the beard, and make for the outlet. Yet had I scarce set foot in the passage when I stopped, remembering how once already this same evening I had played the coward, and run home scared with my own fears. So I was brought up for very shame, and beside that thought how I had come to this place to look for Blackbeard's treasure, and might have gone away without knowing even so much as where he lay, had not chance first led me to be down by his side, and afterwards place my hand upon his beard. And surely this could not be chance alone, but must rather be the finger of providence guiding me to that which I desired to find. This consideration somewhat restored my courage, and after several feints to return, advances, stoppings, and panics, I was in the vault again, walking carefully round the stack of barrels, and fearing to see the glimmer of the candle fall upon that beard. There it was upon the sand, and holding the candle nearer to it with a certain caution, as though it would spring up and bite me, I saw it was a great full black beard, more than a foot long, but going gray at the tips, and had at the back, keeping it together, a thin tissue of dried skin, like the false parting which Aunt Jane wore under her cap on Sundays. This I could see as it lay before me, for I did not handle or lift it, but only peered into it, with the candle, on all sides, busying myself the while with thoughts of the man of whom it had once been part. End of chapter 4, part 1